Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Tara Byrne is a powerhouse in the field of social entrepreneurship, organizing events, and helping to launch startups with a common theme of supporting both personal and professional development for people who want to make a positive difference in the world. Her inspiration to establish under-30 changemakers has become a worldwide movement, which she shepherds through her passion for collaborating and the art of productive procrastination. In this show, Tara tells us the three keys she's found to effective marketing, how she uses social Aikido to make sure everyone wins in any confrontation, and how liberating declaring a failure can be at the right time. Folks, today we're talking with uh, Tara Byrne, and she is a serial entrepreneur and the founder of Under 30 Changemakers. And Tara, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, David. I'm really glad to have you here. I'm excited about this. Can you uh, tell folks a little bit about what Under 30 Changemakers is? Yes. Under 30 Changemakers is a community of young social entrepreneurs from all over the world. And we focus on half personal development and half on professional development. Personal development takes the form of support groups and any kind of maybe art therapy, or we have therapists on board that can help them kind of sort through whatever it is that they're experiencing. And then we also have professional development in the form of coaching and programs that we can refer to. Interesting. So it's, it's a development organization for people, and this is for people under 30 in particular. Yes. Okay. You used an interesting term, social entrepreneurship, and I'm not sure if everybody's familiar with what, how you're using the term. So could you go to a little more information about that? Yeah, I define it, I think maybe a little bit differently than other people do. I define it as the difference between an entrepreneur and a social entrepreneur is an entrepreneur is still solving a problem. I currently living in Silicon Valley, and there are a ton of entrepreneurs here. I've come across this subsect of of people who solve pain and particularly experienced pain. Something happened to them in their life or they experienced someone experiencing pain and they made it their life's mission to solve that. And that's who I work with. Hmm. And how does the social entrepreneur model fit into that? Social entrepreneurship is creating a solution to to a pain point either using technology or a service or a product to go in and hopefully sustainably solve that that issue. So we work with people who are in the green technology field or in the health field, and they're usually coming at it from an experienced standpoint. It's not just, oh, I thought of this idea one day and I'm going to go solve it, uh, which I think is really great. But these are people who are have made it like they were solely dedicated to this one issue in their life and they really want to see it solved. That's interesting. So it's entrepreneurship with a particular passion in mind, like a specific drive, uh, something that they want to accomplish. Yes, purpose. Can you tell me a little bit about what inspired you to get involved with this community? So I started it about two weeks after I was uh, kicked out of my mom's house. I started it actually just as a 
community because I felt isolated. That was my pain point was isolation. And I didn't feel like there were a lot of people who could understand to me or relate to me. And I felt like, felt like that for a really long time. And it made me kind of depressed and it made me kind of, I mean, definitely isolated. Before that, I had taken a year off of school on a quote unquote gap year, which definitely turned into not a gap year. I haven't been to college. And so, so I started the community as a Facebook group, not knowing what it would turn into. Since then, I've been around the U.S. touring for social impact communities, and it kind of grew into a social impact space because of that, because of the people I met and because of what I learned on my journey. That's interesting. So you've been touring with social impact groups. Can you explain a little bit about what that means? Yeah. So about two years ago, I took a road trip from Asheville, North Carolina to San Francisco, down to Austin, and then back to Asheville. And I stopped at a few communities, or quite a few communities, (laughs) that were in the social impact space, one of which was, it really left a mark on me, was Watson University out of Boulder, Colorado. And before that, I was very familiar with alternative higher education, but I had never seen something that was solely focused on social impact. And they use this model called the transformative, transformative action model, or you know, transformative action institutes model. And they did something where they would combine social Aikido with social entrepreneurship and then nonviolent communication. Social Aikido. That's a, that's a new one for me. <laughs> I will definitely explain that one. Cool. So Aikido is a martial arts term to use your opponent's strength to your advantage. Social Aikido is to use your opponent's strength. So someone who you would be fighting against. In So right now I'm working in the climate change field and policymakers are someone that an activist would think to be fighting against, but you actually just want them on your side. So you would leverage something that they want or what would be a win-win situation for them and then get them actually on your side so that it's an entirely win-win situation. Hmm. I hear a little hint of uh, neuro-linguistic programming maybe in that. (laughs) Yes. Yes, there definitely is. Cool. I, I like the term social Aikido. Is this something that this university came up with? No. So Transformative Action Institute has been around for five or six years and they train mostly in California, in, in all of those aspects. And they have their own curriculum that they give out to colleges. Oh, I see. So this was just a curriculum that they were teaching? Yes. Cool. Is, are you involved with the organization itself? I'm involved with Watson University. They taught at our last summit. We had a Changemaker Summit in August in San Francisco, and they were a fantastic addition to the lineup. Hmm. So part of what you've been doing then is is running summits where people physically get together or are these uh, online summits? How does that work? So these are in-person summits. I am trying to prioritize in-person connection in the next year. So part of the reason we're having EarthCon is for that reason. You mentioned EarthCon and you say that you're trying to organize these things in person. Can you tell us what EarthCon is? EarthCon is a five-day conference for social entrepreneurs, engineers, and activists to tackle the domino effects of climate change. But we are part of a much larger event called Campus Party, which is a week-long technology event in Utrecht. And it's going to be really cool things there, like a drone hackathon and all sorts of like competitions around innovation, creativity, and science. 
and entrepreneurship, but our programming will include a refugee food waste and clean tech hackathon, as well as workshops to prepare developers for challenges in the social enterprise space. So my goal in all of these events is to create half personal development and half professional development. And the professional development, we focus on hard skills like sales, negotiation, things that you wouldn't normally learn in a school in the business world. And then personal development usually takes form of things like art therapy. Our last summit had a really cool sculpture process where we all did a collaborative art piece together using reusable materials. And it really brings people together in a really, hopefully, deeply connective way. I last Our last summit, I studied how to connect people really deeply and create lifelong friendships. And one thing we found was that if people get together and are put into extremely challenging situations and unusual situations, they will, one, remember it and then therefore remember the people around them, but will also have a deeper connection with the people that they encounter because they are kind of like war war buddies (laughs) in a way. That's interesting. Do you have a hint about what the unusual situation you're going to put people in in this event is going to be? Yes. So there is something called the Wim Hof method. Have you ever heard of it? No, I haven't. Uh, You might need to spell that for me, in fact. Yeah. So Wim Hof is actually a person. It's a W-I-M space H-O-F, and he is called the Iceman. And he's this really cool dude out of out of the Netherlands who is able to breathe and survive and swim under sheets and sheets of ice. And he does this through a breathing technique that actually slows down his autonomic system. So he's able to do Superman-like things like swim under ice. And he's trekked things like the, the Arctic naked. And he's, he does all this crazy, interesting stuff. This is sounding terrifying. (laughs) Right. But it sounds like something that would really connect people. (laughs) (laughs) If they survive. No, no, we we wouldn't put anyone in a dangerous situation. (laughs) But we are are planning to have a breathing exercise that will be able to get people in that environment and in that headspace. I think it'll be be different in a conference setting, but, you know, we don't have sheets of ice to put put people under. Well, I don't know. In Utrecht, they might. Who knows? I... <laughs> <laughs> That's very cool. Who else is going to be presenting at your conference? There's this one guy, Eric Termude, who I have worked with for the past year on collecting data on social entrepreneurs and what their thoughts are around climate change and how they take action on it. And mm-hmm. he's the founder of Gen Y Inc. We have another woman coming for a to talk on the refugee hackathon, and her name is Anita Wing Lee. And she is a fantastic periscoper. She runs something called the Global Meditation Scope. And it really gives people a platform to get to know one another while they are all doing the same thing. Meditation is something that people kind of need a little bit of guidance on. And so she does a guided meditation worldwide every few months. And it brings this huge crowd together and it gives her kind of her own community of people who want to get in touch with their bodies and calm down and relieve stress. Oh, she sounds amazing. She is really cool. (laughs) I've known her for a really long time. She's a really great change maker and she's been a really close friend of mine for a very long time. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Are you scheduling your own hackathons? 
Yeah, so we're doing a clean tech hackathon, a refugee hackathon, and a food waste hackathon. So we're partnering up with a lot of food waste organizations to be able to hopefully divert a ton of food from Utrecht and put it into a pop-up restaurant or some sort of whatever people come up with. I, I'm pushing for a pop-up restaurant. But... <laughs> well, it's hard to predict with a hackathon. It could be anything. Right. It could be anything. It's funny. All of these workshops and hackathons, you have an idea going into it, how it will turn out. And it's always different. That's part of the beauty. <laughs> yeah. And people come up with these really crazy, cool ideas. Have you run hackathons before? No, I haven't. This will be my first time. I am kind of nervous because I keep hearing about them being really difficult to run, <laughs> but I guess I'll find out myself. I've participated in a few. Have you participated in them? I have, yes. I really enjoyed, I know this wasn't a hackathon, but I really enjoyed Startup Weekend. What is Startup Weekend? Startup Weekend is where you create a startup in a weekend and <laughs> and you run a team. You put your team on various different roles and you create a product and you have to have some sort of prototype. And at the end, you pitch it to jury of judges. Oh, that sounds really exciting. Who runs that? I don't know who runs it. They're in so many different cities across America, maybe abroad, and they are really, really fun to go to. <laughs> that sounds really cool. And it sounds actually like something like that could have helped prepare you for the hackathon that you're going to be running. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. I guess we'll find out. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you, actually, what, what kind of a background are you bringing into this? What prepared you to, to put together a conference like this? Is this your first? No, it's not my first. I've also run Changemaker Summit. And before that, I ran a few big events that weren't conferences, but I ran a concert and a dance marathon in high school. And oh, wow. I just really enjoy, I really enjoy partnerships. I, I think that that's a huge part of events. And I really like organizing people together to do interesting, unusual things. I will have much more of a creative license to do that in my next event, which I will be making very millennial focused. <laughs> and I really enjoy giving people an experience. I also think it's such an honor to, for someone to give you their time. So I try to take that really seriously and create the most memorable experience I can for the people who, who attend. That's awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what goes into putting together an event like this? Because after doing several, I guess you've got, uh, you've got things pretty well nailed down in terms of what you have to do. I think the planning process is a little different for each one. I know our last one started as a very large Facebook group. I just posed the question, who would be interested in helping me with this summit? And we got a team of around, it, became out, it came out to be over 60 people were interested and ended up helping either at the hackathon or from far away. And it's really getting to know people and then assigning them the tasks. So I had Skype calls with a lot of people last year, figuring out what they're good at, where to place them, what they would enjoy doing, and then putting them on teams. I ran my dance marathon in committees, which I still I still do and I really like and I like to do with large events. And we always have a committee on marketing and sales, on storytelling on happiness, which, which is my favorite committee. <laughs> I, I love that committee so much because it, it makes the, the customer or the attendee the priority and they make sure that they are as content as possible during the event and they pay attention to small details that would matter to them. That's nice. So marketing, happiness, sales, what other committees do you usually put together? Food and 
and prizes is my personal. So if I were to choose one to be on for myself, although happiness is my favorite, I really enjoy in-kind donations. I think that they are so much fun to do because you get to get things donated to you for free and you get to give them to people and people are so surprised and delighted when they get these things, things like, you know, free coffee or, or like huge prizes. So cool. And then you also have financial sponsorship, which is something that I, I end up always being on that committee because I am the one pitching the event so that they can keep going. <laughs> <laughs> the, the ability to manage a financial sponsorship committee is a huge, a huge benefit when you're trying to put together an event like this, certainly. Yes, yes. It's always beneficial to have someone who knows the full story. It doesn't matter how many times I say it to say it to people. It it really does matter that it's coming from the person who came up with the idea. That does make sense. Do you have experience working? I, I'm guessing you work on these things in a nonprofit or are these for profit events? These are nonprofit events. Before I committed fully to doing under 30 change makers full time, I was working on something called bridged partnerships. And there I did cross-sector partnerships between nonprofits and for-profits. And I've taken that entire skill set to under 30 changemakers. Most of my work now is just nonprofit, for-profit partnerships. That makes sense. So was this a, a job that you had or was this something that you were doing on a volunteer basis? No. So that was actually, I just decided I wanted to be a, a contractor. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to to do it. I didn't see anyone else doing it. And I thought, you know, I'm living in New York City. Why not? It would be really fun because I I love nonprofits and I love um, negotiating on behalf of nonprofits for what they want. I also realized just working with a nonprofit in high school, the Diabetes Research Institute, that although they do raise a lot of money, they aren't financially sustainable. And I wanted to create a system where for-profits would give a sustainable income to the nonprofit. But also, I don't know if you're familiar with um, the social enterprise has come up in the past 10 years as being a legal entity. And so they could rebrand and then also they could change their legal status to a B corporation or a benefit corporation. And that gives benefits within itself. So it gives them marketing benefits. It gives them leverage with their customers. And that seemed like such a cool opportunity. So I just wanted to try it out and see how it went. And it was doing well. It was such a full-time job that I had to decide between, am I going to do this? Am I going to do a company or am I going to do a community and with events? And I chose under 30 change makers. <laughs> so one of the cool things, the, the sort of meta topic that comes up around all of this is you just decided to do something and then you just went and did it. And it, it's, an, it's an interesting approach to life as a whole. I'm, I'm really curious how you came up with that because a lot of people tend to follow a pattern and say, you know, this is the way you're supposed to do things. Is you have to get the degree, you have to get the credentials, and then you can maybe go out and try to apply to do something. Yeah, I always want to choose myself and in whatever it is that I'm doing. I think I stopped taking any kind of prize or award or I don't think I need anyone to tell me that you know you're you're good enough to do this I have to believe that I am good enough to for whatever it is that I pursue because otherwise why <laughs> why would I do it in the first place and I personally think that what I do is worthwhile I have gone back to a few books that kind of reaffirm that belief because sometimes that you know I do forget it yeah I wish that more people also thought that way that they were just 
that they could just think of something and then trust themselves to just go after it because most people can actually do what they, they want to do. It doesn't really it doesn't really matter, you know, what comes up in the way. So what resources do you turn to? I guess inspiration or motivation when you're feeling like you need that? Every year I turn back to this one book called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And I have reread that book 10 times. I read it at least once a year. I actually read it recently because there is this kind of thrashing before I was getting out a website and I was thinking, why am I doing this? I don't understand. Why, why is this important? And these really irrational thoughts that in the book, it's claimed as resistance. This evil voice within you is trying to get you to not do things. And Elizabeth Gilbert mentioned this in her book, Big Magic, that fear can sit with you. It can say whatever it wants, but it just can't make you not do something. It can just sit beside you. I will listen to what you have to say, but I will do it anyway. And I have that maybe once a month where I have to just really think about why I'm doing what I'm doing, because there's a lot of doubt there. I mean, it's not something I wake up and I'm like, I am 100% totally, you know, I understand why I'm doing this. and I'm totally committed to it, you know, because it is ultimately just up to me to decide that it's worth it. That's inspiring. You're in a situation where nobody has laid out the path in front of you and you kind of have to chop it out of the grasses yourself. Yeah, it's creation. It's art. <laughs> it is creating something out of nothing. And it's hard. I, I really feel for the people in my community because I know how hard it is. And I, I know how many doubts they have. And I really want to give them a community of other people who will say, I understand what you're going through. And I'm going through it too. I love that. And getting comfortable with fear, I think, is something that it's a recurring theme on my show. A lot of people I've talked to talk about the importance of getting comfortable with fear. And I'm curious how you came to that. For a year, I had an alarm on my phone. I actually don't, I don't have a phone on me anymore. But I had an alarm on my phone that would say, do something that scares you. And every single day I had to do something that scared me. It was normally an email. It was almost always an email because I, did, <laughs> I just don't like talking to people I really want to talk to. <laughs> or just sending them the, the, the initial contact. And I ended up meeting a lot of really cool people because of it, but it was terrifying. <laughs> Can you give me an example? Yeah. Oh, one of the most interesting ones was I was in uh, New York City with my sister and we were walking down Times Square and I saw this, <laughs> I saw this guy who I was thinking, wow, he looks so familiar. And then I thought, wait, I know him. He's a model. And I went up to him and I said, hi, do you think you could talk to my sister and maybe sign an autograph for her? Because at the time, my sister was working in a modeling. She was working with a friend of mine on like a young modeling agency. And she was really fascinated by the modeling world. So they ended up taking a picture together and I took it. And it was, it was that initial contact. I ended up meeting a lot of strangers in New York because of it, because I would think, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. It's the last thing I want to do right now. But then I would just go up to the person and ask them a question or strike up a conversation. And I ended up meeting some really interesting, cool people because of that. Earlier on, you said that one of the things that you started the Under 30 Changemakers about was to help deal with your own pain of isolation. Yeah. During my gap year, I pretty much sat at one desk by myself for a year and I read maybe 
50 books. I, I just, I would just read and read and read. And I took so many courses and I just learned a bunch. I was on Duolingo every day, learning a language. I was just consuming, but I was also faced with this kind of unsupportive family. I mean, um, now my, my dad's really supportive because he kind of understands, oh, well, she's probably in this for the long run. She's been doing this for a few years. But I think my siblings definitely didn't understand what I was doing. My mom definitely didn't. My stepdad didn't. And it just came out in this fearful language of, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? You're wasting your time. And I think our parents are always trying to tell us things out of love but they can often be so wrong. <laughs> and it's it's coming from a good place, but I just had to believe that what I was doing was worth doing. And I doubted myself so much that year and that I just kind of cut myself off from a bunch of people. And I ended up being alone. I really, really knew what it was like to be really alone for a year. And after that, I said, you know what? I'm never going to do this again. <laughs> I love people. <laughs> and now I am, I, I've lived in, what, four co-living spaces in the past few years. And I'm always surrounded by people. I, I think that you've, uh, you've really taken the pain that you were experiencing and you've turned it into something that's very positive in your life. I'd like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm curious when you're uh, if if you're confronting fear a lot and attempting things. I know that one of the issues that comes up with some people is fear of failure, and I'm curious if you've encountered that and what your experiences have been. I'm kind of excited to fail sometimes. I I, I do think failure is kind of romanticized in the valley. You know, oh, you know, you failed, such a good job. But I do enjoy knowing that I can move on from something. I think the worst part is actually being in that uncertainty and not knowing if you're going to fail or not because you know when when you're when you failed you're done you, you can just hop to the next thing and i am hoping that as as i grow older there will be larger gaps of failure i'm sure there's a lot of failure in between but i'm also learning especially with events that you can actually optimize a system within an event or within whatever business you're doing that will account for failure, that will just expect it and work it into the system. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that can work? Yeah, there's this really great book called Nassim Taleb called Anti-Fragile. And one, one takeaway that I have used with all, of my, with all of my events in the past year, and it has worked out that has saved my ass so many times is redundancy. So the it's the law of redundancy that every single important, and this also goes back just to anatomy, every single thing that you absolutely need to survive is comes in twos. It's a very simple rule, but when you create it into a system, like my my conference in EarthCon will have two facilitators at every single workshop that we have because people get sick, people drop out, people, you know, life happens and you just work that into the system. I know that, that I did that with my last summit. I think we had three facilitators, something happened with their family or they got sick and we had backups and it really helped a lot. <laughs> that sounds like a very good learning. And uh, it's, it's something that I know that a lot of people could, could apply in a lot of different situations. Yeah, definitely. I'm curious about 
as you say, in the Valley, we do romanticize failure and we are in Silicon Valley. Hello, yeah. well, San Francisco. Or, <laughs> and we are in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> can you, uh, can you share us, uh, share with us a story of failure that you've experienced? Yeah, I, I think my worst failure was one where I worked on a, a website for a year. It was on my gap year quote-unquote gap year, called uh, HS Kids, which was Homeschooling Kids uh, Social Network. And I worked on, on it. I put a lot of money in it. At the time, I was also investing in Bitcoin, which turned out to be a great, great investment. And But I was also diverting a lot of that money to this particular venture. And I did it in the first place because my mom had offered it as an idea. And I thought, wow, that's such a great idea. Why doesn't that exist? I will totally make that happen. And I learned a lot about education, but I I came to understand how important it is to have your heart in something. And I was kind of giving up the idea of who I was for an idea that someone else had. And I have a lot of love and respect for my mom, but it it was ultimately not what my heart was in and I was doing it for the wrong reasons. I think just like if I had gone to college and it wouldn't have been for the right reasons. (laughs) So it made me realize it's so important. I was a failure of trusting myself. And for so long, I, I kept hearing that little voice that said, you know, this isn't for you. This is not what you're supposed to be doing this. And it wasn't just saying, you know, this is a waste of time. It was saying that it, this just isn't, the type of work that you light up with. And I had kept do, I had kept trying to make tech work for me. I had started, I, I actually ended up recruiting like 60 domains that year. And I started a bunch of little websites, niche websites, because of course, you know, people read the four hour work week and they say, you know, I'd have to go make this. Why, why doesn't this exist? And that particular project made me realize that it just wasn't at all what who I was. And it was so important that what I did was kind of an extension of who I was. So it was almost like a failure to, to that. And it was so, so great to finally have it peter out after such a long period of time and just kind of die and finally be able to move on to something else. The, the satisfaction of saying, yes, it's failed. Now I can move on. Right. <laughs> it is, it's actually, I think, a good feeling. I can see that. It, so when you started listening to your heart, is that how Under 30 Changemakers came about? Yeah. Under 30 Changemakers, when it was first started, was such an impulse reaction. I, I, it was an action of survival, I think. It was just, I need this right now. I need to create it it should exist in the world. And then it was created. And it didn't become under 30 change makers for a while. It just kept growing. And then it eventually became its own thing. I might've started it, but it's not entirely mine anymore. People just kind of take the idea and run with it and create out of the, out of the little, the little seedling that it was birthed with. And it doesn't feel like as much my baby as it used to. It's interesting. How large has it grown? It's about 1,500 right now, 1,500 members. And those are highly vetted members. We are also working on Changemaker chapters. 
when I'm not working on events, I'm usually working on those chapters in the developing world. And we're working out a design thinking curriculum that can solve major issues in Akragana and Panama right now. Wow, that's a, that's a really wide reach. And of course, you're doing this event in Utrecht as well. Yes, we are planning for this to be as global as possible in the next few years. That's interesting. So what does your social network look like then? My personal social network? <laughs> the network that you've built up in order to make all of this happen around you. Oh, so Under 30 Changemakers is an umbrella organization. And under that, we have Under 30 Freelancers, Under 30 Nomads, and those are all Facebook groups. And then we also have Twitter chats occasionally, and we're also based on Twitter. And then our social media isn't, I don't think, as powerful as our partnerships and as our one-on-one -on -one connections can be. And then occasionally our support groups are really powerful as well, because those really create the friendships that we want to see with under 30 changemakers. Wow. How are the support groups organized? Google Hangouts and then an event is, is posted on the Facebook group and then people can join them as they want to. That's great. And what about the partnerships? Partnerships are a lot of Skype calls and a lot of collaboration. So it, I got off a call right before this with Global Resolutions and we work with them on getting media syndication. One of our smaller groups is Changemaker PR, where we will syndicate content from our changemakers into things like Huffington Post and get it as far, far, far and wide as we possibly can. That's cool. So yeah, getting the stories out into places like the Huffington Post, that's actually a big challenge. We actually have a lot of people in our group who write for them. It's not too much of a challenge. What is a challenge is getting into Forbes and Inc. and Entrepreneur. <laughs> Okay. Those those end up being you you have to really know people and one tool that we've used is help a reporter out, which has been really helpful and we also have a few growth hack uh, I mean quote unquote like media growth hackers on our team that will pose interesting stories and kind of take the stories that we already have and change them a little bit so that they can be what we know is viral. It, it, there's actually kind of a formula for what viral ends up being. I guess that's the sort of thing that you, you have to learn and uh, capitalize on in order to succeed online anywhere these days. Yeah, I, marketing is so important. <laughs> you should market every single thing you do. <laughs> is it, does that come naturally to you? No, not at all. I, I, before I got into entrepreneurship, I kept hearing about Seth Godin and I ended up reading every single book he wrote and I am now up to date. I love his content and I really do believe that everything we do is marketing. You cannot do anything without being able to sell your idea. And especially with with events and community, you have to be able to show people that you care about what you're doing, that you are willing to help them with what they want to be doing. And then also have it be interesting and delightful and surprising enough that they would just gain from the interaction with it. That's a, that's a good three-point lesson for anybody who wants to get a community following. Yes. Yes. I've, <laughs> I've done quite, quite a few communities now. I, it's, it's really the only, one of the only ways that I see that the communities grow is you have to be able to give a lot.
Do you ever feel like you're running out of things to give? Like you, there's so much demand from the community that uh, that you don't have anything to give, or does that get addressed in other ways? I try to take time every few months to look at value proposition and what we can offer more of because I I get messages from people saying, I want this and I want this and could you help me with this? And they usually end up being the same thing. A lot of it is mentorship and coaching and I want to connect with other people and programs and conferences. But I am constantly trying to ideate how to better serve the people who are in the group because I think if I'm really betting on our members because I think that they will be the ones to to change certain issues, major issues that we have in the world. So I want to give them as the best possible chance that they have. That's a beautiful vision. I'm curious if this is, if things are playing out the way that you envisioned them, say a year ago, or is this, was this where you expected to be a year ago? No, <laughs> not at all. I, I mean, a year ago, I was in getting ready to go to Fargo, North Dakota. I had just met this wonderful lady called Jessie White, who was part of Misfit Inc. And she came up with this idea that I should go speak there. And I ended up staying in Fargo, North Dakota. And I w- had this crazy idea to run a summit. And <laughs> it was it was just... A summit in Fargo, North Dakota. Doesn't... No, 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 no. In, in San Francisco, which, which, <laughs> which I did end up doing. But at the time, I was... A year ago, I would have been li- living in Pennsylvania. Yeah. I don't think I I would have thought that I would be where I am right now <laughs> because it was just all a very crazy idea. <laughs> wow, this is a lot to have come together very quickly then. Yeah, I think EarthCon is what I actually ended up procrastinating on with my last conference. What what I do with conferences, I, was, I will procrastinate on them by running the next conference. <laughs> and I'll start to put together some of the content for it because I think, oh, well, you know what? This would be so cool if we did this. And that's how EarthCon came about. I'm actually doing that right now with a retreat. And <laughs> and that's actually how we keep getting events is I, I'm procrastinating on them. <laughs> that sounds like a very productive way to take something. I think people think of procrastination as a negative thing, but it sounds like you've really applied it in a very positive way. I learned that when I was <laughs> when I was alone at my desk at my gap year productive procrastination because it's it is procrastination i mean i should i should be only focused on on that one thing but i am just kind of add actually not kind of i'm very add and when i cannot work on multiple things i get really antsy and i'll end up working on something not productive so it might as well be this (laughs) (laughs) that's cool can you uh can you tell me a little bit about what your process is like on a day-to-day basis? Like, how do you keep yourself, do you, do you wake up early in the morning? Do you use certain tools? Do you, how do you keep yourself organized? Yeah, I am extremely extroverted and I get a lot of my energy from people. So I try and wake up at around six or seven and then immediately hop on a Skype call. And I'll try to schedule my morning around people and especially new people. I love meeting new people in the morning. And then I will, right now my schedule is kind of messed up because I've been taking really late phone calls because of Dutch time and the time difference between California and the Netherlands. So I will wake up, I will go on these calls all morning and then around lunch, I'll break, I'll eat lunch and then I will sleep because I am 
so close to becoming a polyphasic sleeper, it's kind of scary. <laughs> An unintentional polyphasic sleeper. A very unintentional polyphasic sleeper. <laughs> and then I will go and then start to work from there. My work actually starts maybe at, at two or three, and then I will work into the night. And then I'll take more calls at night uh, with my team. And then I'll go to sleep. <laughs> wow. What tools do you use to keep uh, keep everybody organized and on the same page? A lot of... So we've, we've used quite a few, few tools and we never end up sticking with any of them. We've used Asana. We've used Slack. We end up using Facebook a lot. We use Facebook groups for every single planning committee that we have. And... I also get a lot of one-on-one -on -one Skype calls that, and I, I cap them at 15 minutes, or at least I try to, to make sure that they are quick and it gets done. But we've tried a lot. We've tried Trello. I, I think that with an international team, it makes more sense to just hop on calls together because there is miscommunication sometimes. And and then also a lot of Google Documents, <laughs> a lot of Google Documents. <laughs> yeah, Google Documents, I find a lot of people find those Google Documents are very convenient for, uh, for getting shared information across. Yes, definitely. Cool. So you're at the stage right now where you're putting together this conference and procrastinating by putting together the next conference. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you uh, you anticipate like the the coming year is going to look like? Uh, how many conferences do you think you're likely to be doing in the next year? Oh, I actually so over the weekend I was really procrastinating because for whatever reason I sat down and I was just like I do not want to do what I have to do today. So I what I instead did was I planned the next three years of our conferences. <laughs> so so i i planned for i'm still not sure what date our changemaker summit is going to be but our i right now it's slotted for november and it will be in new york city i am working on getting multiple venues and i'm working on doing it very differently than any conference i think i've been to or have experienced because i'm doing the schedule from 12 p.m to 12 a.m it's a very it's an entirely millennial conference and also, all of our partners will have different venue sites, that, and they will kind of run their own conference, and they'll have their own agenda. Wow, that's a lot to coordinate, and it seems like you have to keep keep in mind uh, a lot of different people's agendas. Yeah, so I'm not too scared about agendas overlapping. I want it to be a musical conference, and I want there to be a party at least every other night that we're having it, and I want it to be a five-day conference. I think realistically this will be in June because November, if you've been to New York City in November, it's not very fun. It's very cold. It's very cold. It's very, very cold. And then EarthCon will be in Asia next year. After that, it'll be in Africa. And then after that, it'll be in South America. And I just started looking up some venue spaces. I really need to stop doing this. <laughs> but but yeah, those are those are our big events. And we'll have Change Trigger Summit every year as well. And then hopefully a retreat every year, which this year it looks like we'll have our first one in France in the summertime. Wow. So when you're brainstorming these things, is this something that you do in isolation or is this something that you do in collaboration as an extrovert working with a team? Oh, it's usually by myself as just a crazy person, <laughs> like late into the night. And I'm just thinking, oh, that would be so much fun if we did this. And then I'll just start writing it down. 
with the one distinction that unlike unlike a lot of people who do this, yours actually happen. Yeah, I mean, I do have a lot of ideas that don't happen, but my events usually happen because I have a lot of people hold me accountable to it. So at what point do you let people know, um, oh, by the way, we're going to be in France next year or whatever? <laughs> when I have a decent document on it, I, I love documenting all of the crazy ideas, the timelines, the itinerary. There's this one project that I'm working on for September where I'm doing a women's bike trip to fundraise for uh, human trafficking. And I just came up with this huge document. It's so much fun to do because I love details and I love planning. So it's just, I don't know, to me, it's just really fun. Where I get people involved with it is usually at the point where I don't want to be the only person holding this idea in. I want people to know about it because I've fleshed it out enough that it's an actual, you know, there's an action plan. I don't want to bring people on if there isn't an action plan for something. It feels to me like the structure for one of your planning documents could be something really useful to other people out there who might want to put together a conference. Oh, I love templates. If there are any templates I can help people with, I'm always willing to share them. Fantastic. And if you have a template you can share, I would love to share it with our, with our listeners. Oh, that would be so cool. Yes, I will make that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll add that to your list of things you can do while you're procrastinating. So I just want to thank you so much for, for joining us and sharing all of your, uh, your process and your information with us. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit HackTheProcess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>